This is what we're doing today. It's a heavy topic, okay? We've begun this series called In 30. You can see the clock on the board. For the next few weeks, we're taking these, these major life topics that Christianity speaks into. Uh, the topics that we, we normally dismiss as thinking they're too complicated, too big, unable to grasp our mind around, and we are doing them before the clock beats me, which they've started already. And uh, here's what we're doing today. Why we suffer. Maybe put it better way. What we're going to be talking about is why do bad things happen? And we're going to do it in 30. As we go into this today, there's three things that I'm going to do. This could be a weekend, week-long seminar, right? We have 29 minutes. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the overarching answer that Christianity says stands behind why we suffer. And then I'm going to give you eight specific things the Bible says about it. Because what you're going to find today is that the Bible doesn't give one answer to the question, why do bad things happen? It gives multiple answers. And then following that, we're going to look at eight things that God says into the midst of it. Now, I know for many of you here, you're facing things right now that make this heightened. My aunt right now just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. They caught it but then they found it spread to the liver and it spread to the stomach. And maybe you know someone here with cancer right now, maybe you have it right now, and you ask that, that proverbial question, right? Why? You know, why did my dad put a shotgun to his head? Why did a tornado come through Oklahoma and kill all these kids who happened to be in the wrong school at the wrong time? And why am I blessed with so much abundance while there's kids in Haiti right now that are facing disease and malnutrition and poverty? It's these questions of why that Christianity speaks into. But I should give maybe a disclaimer. This question of why has caused many people to doubt God, many people to reject God, many people to say, if there was a God who was good, who loved me, and was powerful, then these things shouldn't happen. I'm going to suggest another way of looking at it today. Pain is not so much a problem that Christianity has to answer, as much as it is an answer, or as much as it is an issue that's created by Christianity. God creates the problem of pain. It, wrap your mind around it this way. The only reason we think that suffering is a problem is because we assume that there is a good, all-powerful creator who loves us. But if this is all there is, why should we expect anything else? So do you see how God actually creates a sense that there is something wrong with suffering as opposed to it being a problem for him? Do you follow? And so what we're going to do today is look into some of what the Bible has to say. And we need to start here. Looking at it from an overarching perspective, it is so vital to know off the, off the cuff, suffering is not something that God intended. The suffering that we face, whether the small things or the big things, was never 
part of God's plan. You can go and you can read the beginning of the biblical narrative sometime. And the Bible starts out with this, this, this grand story of God creating this, this, this world and, and everything in it, creating us and, and the things that we experience. And in the midst of this, God says this refrain, it was good, it was good. It was a place filled with, with harmony and peace and wholeness and joy and goodness, a place where death did not exist. And therefore, a place where decay and suffering did not exist. And so that which we experience that we call suffering or bad was never part of God's initial plan. And this is why God warns so much against sin. If you look at that first narrative, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to take care of it. And the Lord said to the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. From the beginning, God knew that there was a choice that people could make to walk with him or to walk against him. Maybe better put, to walk with him or to walk independently of him. And God knew the consequences of what those choices would be. Because you see, where God is and God's will is, there are things like joy, love, life, wholeness, peace. God didn't, like, find these things and take control of them. They emanate from the essence of who God is. And so to be ultimately in God's presence, heaven, if you will, to be in God's presence and to be in his will and his way is to experience those good things that God had made. But God knew that there was a way apart from him and apart from love and life and goodness and joy and peace and wholeness is, of course, darkness and decay and suffering and pain. And all the things that we call suffering in this world. And God warned his people, do not turn that way. We know the story. They did. And the ultimate biblical answer or reason behind why we suffer is that we live in a world and we live as a people who have fallen from God. We have fallen from God. We have taken our own way. This world and our, uh, and our very essence is no longer the fullness and wholeness of what God had intended from the beginning. And keeping this in mind as we start to see how the Bible breathes in to this problem of, of why bad things happen, this problem of suffering and this problem of pain is vital because we need to remember that this is not what God wants. It is not what God wants for you, despite the fact that in the interim he may allow it. And so what I'd like to do with you now is look at eight different things the Bible has to say about why God allows bad things to continue until he comes again to set all things straight. Now as I show you this list, I need to make a couple of disclaimers. First, what I'm doing is giving you the general biblical answers, some of which may apply specifically to you in your current situation of suffering and pain. 
See, the Bible gives eight different answers, at least, depending on how you, you, you organize this. And as we start to go through this, what I am not doing is looking at you directly in the eye and saying, this is why you have cancer. It's because of reason number three. What I am doing is sharing with you these are eight things the Bible has to say about why God, has to su- why God allows suffering. Only some may apply at any given time, and some may not. Some might overlap, and there might be more than one of these that apply to any given situation. Because of time as we go through this list, I'm not going to be able to take you through all of the scriptural passages that I'm going to show you and the many more that surround it. But I want to encourage you to actually take out a Bible today to look up some of the passages as we go through and as I comment on them and explain some of the biblical answers. Why does God allow this thing that we call suffering and pain? Eight reasons God allows it. Here's one biblical answer. It's consequences. It's the consequence of your sin. Smoke for 40 years and you are probably going to get lung cancer. Drink your entire life and there's a higher likelihood that you're going to destroy your family and your liver. Eat uncontrollably and your body will hurt. Sleep around and you will probably pick up a disease. Treat people in a mean and selfish way and you're going to be lonely because no one is going to be, want to be around you. It's just the way it is. And there's no getting around some of these simple cause and effect things that happen as a consequence for our sin. Now in Romans 1.18, and this is important, it says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And oftentimes when people come to the question uh, or, or, or the answer of the consequence of your sin, a question comes up, is God punishing me? I'd like you to take a look at Romans 1.18 here today. And I'd like you to start reading it through as I talk about it a bit, because I think sometimes the punishment of God, which the Bible does talk about on occasion, is so grossly misunderstood. I hear punishment of God, and you know what I think? Guy in the clouds, holding a lightning bolt, scouting it out, ready to throw it, in terms of some kind of direct, I'm looking to nail you. But when you look at how the Bible describes the punishment of God, particularly the New Testament, it takes on a bit of a different flair. If you look at 1.18 and go on, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed. You expect wrath, right? Fire. Yet look at how it progresses. There is a refrain that you will see. Do you see it in the text? It continually says, what was clear about God's will and God's way was, was, was made known to people, and yet they chose their own way, so what did God do? Look at 120. He handed them over. And you see how it spirals deeper. And it goes on to say that people even realized that what they were doing was wicked and evil, but they still rejected God, so what did God do? You see the line? He handed them over. Do you know what that means? 
God is ultimately going to let you do what you want. God is ultimately going to allow you to choose what you want. But with our choices, we've all learned from three years old, come consequences. Don't eat of the food with the tree in the garden, otherwise you'll die. Don't do it, guys. It's not that I'm going to kill you. It's just going to happen. And sometimes the reason why we suffer is simply a consequence of our sin. Now, sometimes it has nothing to do with that. Sometimes it's the consequence of other sins. Because we live in a fallen world, yet we do not live alone. We live in a fallen world where everything, including the created order, is broken and distorted. And that means that other people can choose ways to, and sometimes we simply find ourselves in the blast radius, don't we? Sometimes it has nothing to do with us at all. We simply live in the aftershock of a world that's not the way it's meant to be, and in the wake of what people choose to do. There's this amazing passage in Luke 13. It's one of my favorites. Disciples come up to Jesus, and they start asking about why these people suffered over here, why those people suffered over there. And he brings up this example of this, this tower that fell, this tower that fell and killed all kinds of people inside. And he goes, you know those 18 people who died in that tower? Do you think that they were worse sinners than anyone else? And you know what Jesus' answer is? I tell you, no. Sometimes we suffer because of the consequence of our sin. And because of that possibility, it demands a constant soul-searching and repentance on each of our parts. But sometimes it has nothing to do with us at all. Number three. Because you're a Christian, or maybe better put, if you're a Christian, God promises you a lot of things. Do you know that? God promises he'll always be with you. God promises to forgive your sins. God promises that he will save you. God promises that as a follower of him, you will suffer. And you will suffer precisely because you are a Christian. In fact, you will suffer more than others. Well, sign me up for this faith, right? What does Jesus say? All people will hate you on account of me. What does Jesus say? A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If this is what happens to the master, Jesus, should you expect anything different? And because we live in a fallen world, a fallen world that's chosen its own way, a fallen world that is straight from God, and a fallen world where people hate God, you will get ground zero blast radius if you walk with Christ simply because you're doing it his way. Next one. To discipline and to train you. Turn to this one and read it with me. Hebrews chapter 12. It says this. 
starting at verse 7, it says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their fathers? You ever get in trouble from mom and dad? No. According to Hebrews, they did not love you. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're, then you're actually illegitimate, um, according to Hebrews. Of course our parents discipline us, right? Because they love us. That's why when our kid goes to touch a knife or wants to go play with matches, you do that. Because that hurts. But not as bad as something else which is worse by far. And the Bible says, when you suffer, approach it as discipline from the Father. That sometimes God will allow bad things to happen as a way of discipline and training us. And we'll get more into that in a bit. Next one. To protect your soul. And that's the reason he does it. Paul writes this. Because of these exceedingly great revelations that God has given me, because God did these amazing things in my life, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, he gave me a thorn in the flesh. And I begged God. I begged God to take it away. But each time God said this, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. See, sometimes God will discipline you, and sometimes God will train you, and sometimes God will allow bad things to happen to you in order to protect you from something so much worse by far. Because God knew that Paul's soul was more important than God's feelings in the moment. In order to keep Paul from getting corrupted by what he saw filled with arrogance and pride, he forced him to deal with something that we would call bad. And he did it because he knew there was something worse by far on the other end. Jesus does this all the time. Remember when he goes and flips the tables? Who do you think got hit by one of those? Who do you think lost their livelihood that day? We never think of the fallout and the aftermath, do we? Someone was hurt by Jesus' action. It said he came in with whips and cords and drove them out. I guarantee it takes hitting one person for other people to go, oh, think about that one person though, right? No one wants to be the example. But why did he do it? Because as he puts it, do not fear the one who can take the body. Fear the one who can take the soul. And sometimes God will allow suffering and pain to protect us from something far, far worse on the other end. C.S. Lewis, he writes an amazing book. I encourage you to read it. It's called The Problem of Pain. He says this. God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our conscience. But God shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When do you turn to God? When everything's going great? Or when you need him because it really hurts? Next one. For God's glory. This one's a bit weird. John chapter 9. Read with me. 
Jesus is out doing his ministry. He comes along, and it says he sees a blind man, a man who is blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And look at what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind, so God's work of healing could be displayed in him. Does that sound like a royal setup to you? I don't know what to do with that. But you'll see the Bible speak this way. Romans 9 will say that God raised Pharaoh up in order to display his power. And it seems that sometimes God allows bad things to happen for his glory and to display his work. Next one. As a warning of something worse, we've commented on this one already, but I want to go back to Luke 13 for a moment. Remember those 18 people in the tower that fell and they all died? And Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners than anyone else? I tell you no. Do you know what his exact next words are? But unless you repent, you too will perish. And so sometimes a degree of suffering serves as a warning of something greater. It's amazing when you think of the character of God. God is loving and God is just which means God will do what is right and God will punish that which is wrong, but God, because he is loving, doesn't want to. Have you ever noticed in the ministry of Jesus, despite the fact that he's both loving and just, he does far more loving things than he does, quote, just things? It's the MO of who God is. But don't make God's love a mistake. Don't make the mistake of thinking God's love means that he will not judge. The New Testament is replete that when God comes again, he will judge the living and the dead. But the Bible also says that God is patient, wanting all people to come to repentance, wanting no one to face judgment, and so sometimes a degree of suffering now serves as a greater warning of what God does not want to come. And finally this, undisclosed cosmic purposes, which is just like a $10 way of saying, man, I have no clue. Sometimes it simply isn't revealed. There's the story of Job, right? The story of Job, where this righteous man undergoes suffering, and he undergoes it simply because of a cosmic bet between God and the devil. It's kind of Job's way, the book of Job's way of saying, the reasons are undisclosed to you, but sometimes God has them. Now I look at these eight reasons why God allows suffering to happen. And we come to it individually, don't we, asking the question, why? You know what the problem with the list is? You can know that these are reasons, but you cannot know which reasons apply to you. God just doesn't share it. And so heed the warnings and do the soul searching and take an examination of yourself, but ultimately at the end of the day, you are not going to know why if it is followed with the word, me.
So what I found is a far better question to ask is not why, but now what? Because in addition to God providing why answers, I'd like to share with you eight things that God speaks into the midst of suffering. Your punishment is paid. Romans 8 says, There is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a believer in Christ, God is not punishing you. God has punished his son. Jesus has taken your sin on a cross. Your suffering is not punishment upon you. Number two, God knows what it's like. God is not some distant creature who lives a billion miles away, who doesn't understand what it's like to be human. The entire point of Jesus coming to earth was to take on humanity to understand completely what it is like to be human, to suffer as you suffer, to face weakness as we face weakness, to struggle and be tempted and wrestle and hurt. He was on a cross, wasn't he? He is with you. How does the Gospel of Matthew end? Go and make disciples of all nations. It's where we fixate all the time, isn't it? But what is the very last thing Jesus says in Matthew? And I will be with you always to the end of the age. How does Psalm 23 go and why do people like it so much? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, finish it. You are with me. God will protect you. I can't delve into the passage because of that stupid thing. But look at Psalm 91. Read about how God positions himself as your refuge and your strength and ever-present help in trouble. Saying things like he will send, send his angels to guard you and to protect you so that you will not strike a foot against the stone. Which seems odd because it seems like a lot of people just aren't protected. Doesn't it? And yet, even when we face these things that may even take our lives, as believers have had taken from them for bearing the name of Christ for centuries, God still says somehow in the midst of it, I am protecting you in kind. That when the full weight of this world wants to come around you, God is still shielding you, even if you feel the brunt of some of it. And God says this, that he will sustain you. That he'll never give you more than you can bear. He says this, that he will develop you. What does Paul write? I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in them because I know that my sufferings will produce perseverance. The ability to hang in there and keep going. And perseverance will develop my character. And character brings hope. And he says, hope will not disappoint. And he says this, to those of you who are suffering now, there is a future hope that we might not experience the fullness of what God intended here, but we will again someday. 
But the message of Jesus is not to say that your life is better here and now. Following Jesus may cost you your life here and now. But as Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That God has a plan and a purpose and a destiny that is out there and it's coming. And he says this, that out of it, God will work good. That no matter what suffering, hurt, or pain that you face, even out of the most evil things, God will work good. If God can bring redemption for the world out of the bloody massacre of his son, what can God work out of your pain right now? This is not to say that what you experience is good. Never call evil good. What it is to say is even out of the worst evil, God can redeem, God can restore, and God gives you hope. So bonus number nine. What does that mean in the meantime? Look at the words of Philippians. The Lord is near. So don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, no matter what the pain or struggle, with thanksgiving, bring it to God. And you know what he promises? That the peace of God, which transcends, which goes beyond all human understanding, which doesn't make sense, but overshadows it. It's going to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I'd like to invite you to rise. I'd like to invite the band to come forward. We're going to commune today and, a commun- and communion is a reminder that God suffers too. That Jesus suffered for me and for you. That Jesus not only faced the horrible things of this world, but he embraced them. And he embraced them because God loves you. And suffering is not what God intended for you. And God chose to come into the midst of that suffering for all those reasons we spoke of. I'd like you to pray Philippians with me today. All right. I'd like you to pray this with me today. And whatever your suffering, whatever your pain, as you say these words, bring it to God. Bring it to God and then come to his table. Eat and drink as God comes to you. We pray. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take and eat. 
This is my body given for you. And afterwards he took a cup and he gave it to them and he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of a New Testament and it is shed. I don't know what your suffering is today. And I don't know who you come here on behalf of that may be facing the, the, the evils and the terrors and the horrible things of this world. But I do know that God has something to say about it. And not only about it, but into the middle of it. I don't know if you remember the eight things we put on the board, but let me repeat them again. That God is not punishing you. That God will be with you that God will protect you and that God will sustain you and that God knows what it's like and that God will take it and through it he'll develop you and God will bring good out of it and the promise that there's a future hope out there that no matter how bad the suffering is here it is not worth comparing before we leave today, I just want to invite you. If you have a prayer of suffering here today, your owner or, or for someone else, shout it out to God. We're not going to come forward just from your, your, your seats where you're standing. Just shout it out. But rather than asking today for God to fix this or solve that, do something else instead. Embrace one of those eight things God has to say. Maybe your prayer is this. God, my aunt has cancer, but I know that you're with her and me. And embrace that promise here today. Maybe it's God, I'm hurting, but I know you're not punishing me. Thank you for your forgiveness. Embrace that promise today. So I'll invite you now, just close your eyes. Close your eyes so people have the freedom to offer these up. And if you have a prayer and, and a promise to embrace, now's your time. Bring it to the throne of God here today. For my aunt, oh God, that you would help her to know that you protect her. John and the promise to sustain him.
God, for whatever hurt, whatever sorrow, whatever pain is felt here today. Breathe into it. May we cling, God, to, to the promises you've made. I know they're certain and true. But they will not fade. They will not fail and they will not break. God, this we pray and together we glorify your name. Amen. And may the God who forgives, the God who protects, the God who sustains, the God who redeems and restores and gives a hope and a future, may he be with you in your pain. Amen. Guys, you can have a seat. Folks, ushers are going to come forward. They're going to be receiving the offerings. If you brought one today, just drop it in the bucket. They're going to be receiving the connection cards. Please fill one out here this morning. Drop it in the ushers. Drop, well, you could drop it in an usher. I don't care. Drop it in the bucket or in an usher. Either of your choice. Ushers, do it. Guys, had an incredible week here at Fellowship of Faith last week, and uh, I'm going to bring someone forward to uh, tell you about it. This is Becky Williams. She is our Children's Ministry Director here at Fellowship of Faith. She just got done running Bible Boot Camp for the week. Uh, give her a hand, would you? Beautiful weather. It was very hot, as most of you know, um, but it was just beautiful weather to have, and the kids are outside playing games and, uh, you know, water games and all different sorts of activities together, but we had 109 kids come this year, so we broke our record, I think last year was 103, so it was 109 um, with leaders, adult leaders, er, adult leaders was, I think there was 10 of us, and then with the kids there was about 25 of them. But it was just a great week, and things that I wanted to share with you is just that the kids learned about compassion, showing compassion with each other, how to be there for each other when they're leading their groups, and you know, sharing the joy and the struggles that goes into being a leader. As you all know, when you've led a group of your own, and um, especially kids' groups, you know, there's fighting going on, there's bickering back and forth, and the leaders are junior high and up that have to deal with that within their own groups. But then there's also accomplishments and successes within their groups. We had blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, there was, <laughs> there was people who got injured and you had to take care of each other in those ways as well. And so I just love to see the kids be stretched in all of their abilities. And I think they were this week. They were challenged in many ways. Um, 
some of the challenges that they were sent home with that they had to do as well. Um, we focused on here to serve was our theme this year, and so each day they received a challenge that they um, were sent home with. And the first day was to clean their house, um, do something for their family. And I received multiple pictures and emails thanking me for having their kids clean their house. So that was a good one. Um, then on the second day, it was the church. And so some of you might have even received cards from, from some of the kids. They're supposed to send something out to somebody who was sick or um, just that they were thinking about. And so that was what they did for the second day. And the third day was community. And that, I, I feel, that was my favorite day because it was serving the community. And what we did is we invited Sheltered Village. If you're not familiar, they're a home for mentally handicapped. And they came and participated with us. And it was just, it was phenomenal to watch the kids engage with the residents. We had six, or I think it was seven residents came, and um, some of my favorite things was capture the flag, watching them just, the residents be excited to run across with the flag. But one resident in particular, he actually did the slip and slide, and that was awesome. He just went full on down the slip and slide, and the kids were just ecstatic about that. So that was my favorite day. But on Wednesday, their challenge that they were sent home with was to run their own lemonade stand. And so I anticipated, you know, kids coming in and bringing a couple dollars here or there. But we have total raised with our lemonade stands and um, all the kids doing that. We have raised, let me get the number here. And kids are still bringing in their money today, but uh, $455. So that is awesome. Just an awesome amount of money for them to go out and sit out in that heat and serve lemonade to people. <laughs> so uh, I was very impressed with that. So 455 they also are set up here today. And just if you would like to donate anything, we have um, a bin and they're going to be uh, passing out lemonade to you as well. And we have our bake sale items that are left over that you can also purchase or give some sort of a donation to them. The other one that we did was we were collecting items from all of you for the rummage sale. And so I was happy to report that our total so far was 570 for the rummage sale. So we made quite a bit on that as well. Uh, we saved some of the items that were left over are in the back. If you'd like to go peek, we have a little bit left that um, hadn't sold. So if you'd like to check that out, you can do that as well. But thank you for all of you that helped behind the scenes. There were some people that came and sprayed for mosquitoes because the mosquitoes were atrocious outside. And um, I appreciate that they came early morning and did that. So anything that you did, I appreciate. And all the student leaders and the adult leaders that came in and helped throughout the week, that was great. Thanks for making it another success. Becky didn't mention it, but what, what struck me so much with the lemonade stand and the, the rummage sale is this was not just an FOF fundraiser. This was all being raised for childhood cancer research. So the kids who are out selling the lemonade, it's not like you're going home pocketing 20, right? And, and it's not like you're even getting something here tangible for you. They did it all for kids healthier than them, or less healthy than themselves that they didn't even know. So make sure to check it out here today. Go through the, the rummage sale remainders, buy some lemonade, and uh, hey, Becky, again, just fantastic job this week. Let's give her a hand one more time, all right?